You're in love with him, aren't you? Your poor patient. You think he's a saint because of the way he looks? I don't think he is. I'm not in love with him. I'm in love with ghosts. So is he. He's in love with ghosts. What if I told you he did this to me? How could he have? When? I'm one of his ghosts and he wouldn't even know it. I don't know what that means. Ask your saint who he is. Ask him who he's killed. Welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, Jay Hamia. And me, James Walton. And today we've got the second in our three-part series, The Booker at the Oscars, which is running between this year's nomination and this year's award ceremony. Uh, last time we did Schindler's List, the first Booker winner to become a film that won the Best Picture Oscar. And today we're doing the second, The English Patient by Michael Andarchi, which won the Booker in 1992. Uh, the film written and directed by Anthony Mangella, which was released in 1996, nominated for 12 Oscars in all and won nine including Best Picture, Best Director, uh, and Best Supporting Actress for Juliette Binoche. Uh, a Jack Seals win for cinematography may be worth a mention. Uh, but in part one, let's uh, concentrate on the book, which did, after all, come first. Uh, this was the 1992 Booker winner, uh, jointly uh, with Sacred Hunger by Barry Unsworth. Uh, other books shortlisted that year include Black Dogs by Ian McEwan and Butcher Boy by Patrick McCabe, mm. which anybody with long uh, Booker Prize podcast memories might know was the book I brought along when Joe and I first met mm-hmm. in the very first podcast as one of my favourite Booker books ever. Also, I should mention that The English Patient won the Golden Man Booker in uh, 2018. It was basically, there was one book chosen for every decade, uh, with that obviously for the 90s, and then the public vote as to what was the best of all, and it, The English Patient was voted. So, uh, Joe, what can you tell us about Michael Ondaatje? Ondaatje was born in Sri Lanka in 1943. I think... After a certain point in his, in his childhood, his parents divorced and his mum went to England. He joined her around the age of eight, I believe. Maybe, maybe a little bit older. His, his mother and his brother Christopher, who's now knighted and an eminent Canadian, yes. uh, moved to England first. After his dad left home as dad, but an alcoholic by all yeah. accounts. So after a childhood in England, he emigrated to Toronto as an undergraduate. He began teaching around 1971 there. I think, although we think of Andache as a novelist primarily, he's also quite an accomplished poet. I and believe it was he's for also quite a, a long time. Yeah, yeah, I believe he's also a documentary maker, um, as well as winning the Booker Prize for the English Patient. Uh, he was also long listed in 2018 for a novel called Warlight. Interestingly enough, also a Second World War book, yeah. although I think much more directly about the Blitz as opposed to the kind yeah. of yeah. gauzy, um, dreamlike. It kind of almost seems post-war, the English patient, even though it's not, but it it occurs in an emotionally post-war space, I suppose you could say. But yeah, I believe he's still in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, although um, he's very uh, recognised in Sri Lanka, including in 2016 when a newly discovered species of Sri Lankan spider was named after him. Wow. Brignolia Ondarchi. Uh, that's how famous he is. Oh, so the one thing I'd just like to throw on in a personal note, I read the, his first book after... Um, the English place Annual's Ghost, which is set in Sri Lanka mm-hmm. when I was on honeymoon in Sri Lanka. Doing, oh. doing that sometimes mocked, but actually fantastic thing of reading books where they're set. Anyway, <laughs> uh, obviously nothing more romantic than reading a novel about the Sri Lankan civil war on your honeymoon. Uh, so, uh, the plot of The English Patient, uh, which took uh, Andachi six years, solid years apparently, 
doing nothing else for for the story to get worked out to, to arrange and rearrange and edit. So it opens in a villa in Italy in 1945 with the war in Europe recently ended. And we see a nurse who daily bathes and anoints a badly burnt patient. And we gradually find out who they are. The nurse is Hannah, who's 20, from Canada, who's suffering from a kind of shell shock, which is why she's decided to stay in the villa with this guy rather than follow all her colleagues when the villa ceased to become a military hospital and everybody else headed north. We then learn about who the burnt man is. Uh, he was he fell from a plane over the desert, burning, saved by the Bedouin, delivered to the Allies, and um, now he's here in this former military hospital that she has refused to leave. He's a man who seems to know about everything. Big fan of Herodotus. <laughs> and uh, the film actually led to a massive spike in sales of Herodotus. Really? Yes, of the did. histories? Yeah. Wow. Uh, in the way that... Uh, uh, four Weddings and a Funeral did for Auden. Anyway, <laughs> he seems to know about plants, guns, flowers, Kipling, winds, pretty much everything else that comes up. Then in the next section, a man with badly injured hands hears about it and he arrives and he is David Caravaggio. And his backstory is that he knew Hannah's father very well mm-hmm. in Canada. And Hannah, in fact, and David Caravaggio w- were both major characters in uh, on Dodge's previous book, In the Skin of the Lion. Yeah, I didn't know this. Yeah, so, so th- uh, that was their story in Canada and that's why they are very close here. Uh, less so in the film, as we'll discover. And he suspects he knows who the English patient is, this mysteriously badly burned person who says he doesn't know who he is, except that he's English. Uh, and he isn't English. His name is Al Masi. Uh, he was a Hungarian. And David thinks that he worked for the Germans as a spy, or at least helped the Germans in some way in the war in North Africa. And as the book goes on, he feeds in morphine, and together he and Hannah learn that um, he is indeed Al Masi. He was a desert explorer in an international party in the 1930s and fell in love with Catherine Clifton, the wife of Geoffrey Clifton. And then the central quartet in the villa is completed by the arrival of Kerbal Singh, nicknamed Kip, mm-hmm. which was also um, Dodge's nickname to Dulwich College in, when he was, uh, went to English public school. Uh, and Kip is an Indian Sikh uh, and a sapper, so he, he is there to diffuse the unbelievably large amount of mines that the Germans have left behind yeah. uh, in, in the villa and everywhere around it. And we also get his backstory. And then the four of them sort of put themselves together tentatively, I think. Ondochi calls it tentatively, start to heal uh, after the war. So what, what did you think of it, Joan? I really loved it. I loved it so much. Oh, uh, Why so? Okay. I think there are very few books where the author can set up a sense of tragedy about three pages in. So just to give people who haven't read this book an well, idea. It can't be a spoiler alert if it's third page. Can yeah, it? it's, it, it's fourth page, to oh. be fair. Um, Still no spoiler. So the, the book opens with Hannah caring for the English patient who is not English. It's the great sort of con of the book and an indictment of you know nationalism and imperialism generally on Ondaatje's part. But that aside, the book opens with Hannah caring for the deeply disfigured English patient. And there's this beautiful scene where she's unskinning plums with her teeth and passing the flesh of the fruit into his mouth. There's this gorgeous line where he's, it goes, you know, he whispers again, dragging the listening heart of the young nurse beside him to wherever his mind is, into that well of memory he kept plunging into during those months before he died. So that sort of sets up the form of the novel, which operates on these these kind of points at which something will trigger each of the characters into a into a memory but then you have this heartbreaking passage all of a sudden that goes there are stories the man recites quietly into the room which slip from level to level like a hawk he wakes in the painted arbor that surrounds him with its spilling flowers arms of great trees 
He remembers picnics, a woman who kissed parts of his body that are now burnt into the colour of aubergine. I have spent weeks in the desert forgetting to look at the moon, he says, as a married man may spend days never looking into the face of his wife. These are not sins of omission, but signs of preoccupation. I've spent like this morning before the recording of this podcast arguing with a lot of our team that The English Patient is like a brilliant, masterful book and film. But to me, those two paragraphs contain an entire like novel in and of themselves. It's, I just it's just find a it so book. tragic, so beautiful. And Undarche's prose is pretty much just like that for the entirety of the book. It's just it's descriptive without ever being florid. It works the way memory does in the way that certain details wash over you quite suddenly and then withdraw kind of like a wave. I think the thing that I love most about this book is that there's a method he uses where he doesn't he doesn't signal to you who who is speaking or whose perspective you're reading from. He just kind of launches you into it. And you should feel quite destabilized by this but actually I don't know about you James I felt it sort of worked with this idea of a novel that seeks to overcome ideas of tribalism or nationalism it felt quite natural that he should give us these unlabeled instances of consciousness and and then you just kind of gradually realize whose voice belongs to who there's just so much to love in this book for me I adore it I really really like it that's not love James no it's not adoration but it's becoming so yeah, as, as you're making the case it is a, a, a terrific book mm. yeah and, and that's he, he, he says that because he was a poet he was a poet for I think a long time before he, he turned to uh, novel writing and he was asked you know what, what's your poetic background being to the English patient and he said um, sort of quietness is a whispering mm. it's not a declaiming book but if people know the film yeah they will, will think it's the big love story yeah but actually, it's not. The big love story in the film is a constituent part of the book, but not, not colossal. No, I mean, it's actually no, quite s- small, no. relatively speaking. So Ju- Juliette Binoche, who plays Hannah, the nurse, who was up for Best Supporting Actress, and won, in fact, and Kristen Scott Thomas, who was up for Best Actress, plays Catherine. But if it had been faithful to the book, it would have been the other way around, because Hannah is the, would be the main actress, wouldn't it? Yeah. Would be, and, and very much supporting actress, uh, Catherine. Um, what do we make of, of Hannah? Of Hannah as a character. Yeah. She, she, it's quite interesting, the idea of that nurses get shell-shocked. She just suffered enough. She also learned of the death of her father. Yes, who also is, died in a fire. I yeah. say also, but the, the English patient represents to Hannah, I suppose, an opportunity to be by the side of her father. That's right, to tend to her father in a way that yes. she couldn't. Caravaggio, at a certain point, very early on when he arrives at the villa, is concerned that... Um, that Hannah might in some way be in love with the English patient. And in fact, what she's done is sort of elevated him into a kind of saintly. Um, yes, she has really, hasn't she? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, but, but this is so interesting to me because actually the thing is, you're asking me what do I think about Hannah? But the fact is, I don't think with any of the central four characters in this book, you could say what you thought about one person without drawing upon no, another. True. The way that they all work is in relation to each other. It's one of the amazing accomplishments of this novel. Of course, you can kind of think of them as distinct characters. You could think Hannah is a nurse. Hannah is Canadian. Hannah has cut herself off from her emotions and calls people buddy 
in order to overcome the grief that she feels at being shell-shocked from war. But that wouldn't really tell you what Hannah was like. What would tell you what Hannah was like is the fact that she reads to the English patient and anoints him with oils, that she has this relationship with Caravaggio where she understands that he is a humane thief, that um, she falls in love with Kirpal Kip Singh and in the end represents to him the kind of opportunity that he, he never quite manages to reach to, I suppose, create an alliance within himself with the West so-called and I yeah it's I keep saying that I love this book but it's one of the reasons that I love this book is that the the same is true of say um Caravaggio you could not talk about Caravaggio without talking about his relationship to the English patient which is a lot more pronounced in the film than it is in the book but this idea that he he harbors suspicions that the English patient may not be English. And the reason he does this is because he has been mutilated in war and is in the film more so seeking revenge, I think in the book more so seeking explanations as to why he wants to find the center, the root of the evil that has been done to him and is forced to let that all go because the man he finds who he expects will kind of resolve this question to him is has no memory, has no body, has no use. And so he's set free by the English patient. And yeah, it's an extremely, I'm making this book sound so complex, but it's not. It's sort of, I feel like explaining how your friends work upon you in your life yeah. or your family works upon you in your and, life. And that very, it is very delicately done, isn't it? The tentative mm. way in which they put themselves back together and help to put each other back together. Now you mentioned a couple of times the theme of nationalism and imperialism and it, it's too forbidding because... They are pretty much central to the book. But anyways, as you say, one thing we learn about the English patient is that in the desert he came to hate nations. Yes. He, he wanted to erase his name and where he comes from, uh, which he kind of does, actually. Yeah. Uh, because he ends up as the English patient. And there's a, a colleague of his who uh, commits suicide when he hears a pro-war sermon in Somerset. It's different in the film. But here we're told that he dies, quote, because of nations. Mm. But is there a sort of, I suppose, on the Fool's Paradise devil's advocate side of things to mix sure. with metaphors um that it's about it's as touching and nice but also as naive as imagine there's no countries by john lennon so i think and Andace is operating at a higher level than the characters right so i think kirpal or kip is a really good and his relationship with hannah following this idea that you can't talk about one character without talking about yeah. the other. His relationship with Hannah is a really good example of this sort of naivete being gradually put to bed, but only once it has been usefully exhausted, because what these characters are all doing in this Italian villa is overcoming, you know, overcoming a war, overcoming huge amounts of trauma. And in order to do that, they need to put the past behind them and believe in a better future. And so part of that is... um uh, Kip and Hannah's relationship. Kip in the book is this character who, um, for the first time in his life, felt a kind of uh, a kind of kinship or community he's always longed for in the sort of division that he signs up for for diffusing, diffusing mines or bombs. Yeah. 
he's um, overseen by a man called Lord Suffolk, yeah. who is by all accounts very generous, very kind to him. Well, he loves England at this point and lo- loves Lord Suffolk. Yes. All the while playing in the back of his mind um, is the idea that his older brother is the man who is supposed to have gone to war. Kip in the family order of things, should have gone off to become a doctor. His brother should have gone to war. But his brother doesn't believe in fighting wars on behalf of the West. And so he's always told Kip that he is a fool to love the English. When Kip finally finds this kind of community in England, it's only by the grace of Lord Suffolk's kindness. He is thoroughly discriminated against by other members of the British army. Um, And Lord Suffolk, rather tragically, he's a real-life figure, actually dies diffusing uh, a mine. At which point Kip continues on in command of his squad, takes over from Lord Suffolk, but his belief in this idea of community falls apart and is only restored by his relationship with Hannah gradually. To be clear, Kip and Hannah have a a fairly mutually assured passion for each other. There's no question about that. But the way their relationship is described, even in the middle of the book, you you know that it's doomed to fail because, for example, he will sit up and flip his hair forward and begin to rub the length of it with a towel she, as in Hannah, she imagines all of Asia through the gestures of this one man. The way he lazily moves his quiet civilization. He speaks of warrior saints and she now feels he is one, stern and visionary, pausing only in these rare times of sunlight to be godless, informal, his head back on the table so the sun can dry his spread hair like grain in a fan-shaped straw basket. Although he is a man from Asia who has, in these last years of war, assumed English fathers following their codes like a dutiful son. Ah, but my brother thinks me a fool for trusting the English. He turns to her sunlight in his eyes. One day, he says, I will open my eyes. Asia is still not a free continent, and he is appalled at how we throw ourselves into English wars. It is a battle of opinion we have always had. One day you will open your eyes, my brother keeps saying. The sapper says this, his eyes closed tight, mocking the metaphor. Japan is a part of Asia, I say, and the Sikhs have been brutalised by the Japanese in Malaya, but my brother ignores that. He says the English are now hanging Sikhs who are fighting for independence. And Hannah's only response to this very good point is to go. She turns away from him, her arms folded. The feuds of the world, the feuds of the world. She walks into the daylight darkness of the villa and goes in to sit with the Englishman. I mean, Hannah's got a point as well. She's right. The feuds of the world, the feuds of the world, you know. No, it is massively new. There's so many ways of reading that. It's a very undogmatic book, I think. On the other hand, the fact that she does this is sort of the reason why, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Kip has no choice but to return to India and, and marry, I suppose, a nice Indian wife and and to you know, follow his brother's words, really. Follow this belief, even even though he will always think of Hannah as someone who gave him this momentary ability to be side by side with the West. Just 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 before we we better move on and uh, the film in, in a second, but one one thing that's just not in the film that you've mentioned, and I don't, don't think it needs a, sp- a spoiler alert, really, because <laughs> yeah, the, the bombs got dropped on Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. <laughs> but, but in the book, this is a very sudden realisation now for Kip yeah. that actually he, so he says, when you start bombing the brown races of the world, you are an Englishman. And then it, this, this is a phrase often attributed to him, but actually it's Caravaggio who, who thinks they would yes. never have dropped such a bomb on a white nation. Yeah. And he, 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 he just goes away on his motorbike, but then um, falls off a bridge. And I have read some critics suggesting that this is Andachi disapproving of his hasty departure because I, I i must say it does seem a bit hasty to me he's been very fond of the english admittedly you know with the provisos that you have eloquently described joe but um suddenly 
attacking the Japanese, who, after all, have been attacking the rest of Asia, haven't, haven't been particularly good guys, and dashes off in a sort of rage, and then, as I say, crashes. The, the, the crashes on Dodge's rebuke to his over-hastiness. I'm not sure about that, really. I'm not either, because I think it really deviates from this idea um, that's set up with the so-called English, actually Hungarian, uh, patient himself, who sort of switches sides in the war, going from being on the side of the Allies to, you know, leading the Germans across the army in Rommel's territory. I I kind of, I don't think Andache judges the English patient any more than he judges Kip, really. I kind of read that scene of him falling into water as, um, I don't know, maybe this is like a really, um, maybe I read too much into this, but I definitely remember this scene of, um, Hannah telling Kip that she would like to take him to Canada to visit a river um, that's very dear to her and all he can think of when he thinks of rivers are you know being shot at or diffusing mines and this moment of falling into a river which he left was kind of confirmation of this fact that his memory will just ultimately always go back to that not necessarily to that place of war but to that separation between the two of them you know the ability she has to see a river and think I would like to bring Kip here and Kip's inability to think of it as a nice place there's only the only way his mind can go is I was part of a war as a as a brown man yeah so so well, thanks Joe you have a beautiful close reading you've done there and you the book <laughs> you completely adored and I greatly admired and and sort of loved it really and it is great um so the question is how on earth do you turn a book like that into a big oscar-winning film so find out after the break mrs clifton i'd like to present count Olmerschi. hello jeffrey gave me your monograph and i was reading up on the desert very impressive thank you i wanted to meet the man who could write such a long paper with so few adjectives <laughs> a thing is still a thing no matter what you place in front of it Big car, slow car, chauffeur-driven car. Broken car? Still a car. Not much use, though. Love. Romantic love. Platonic love. Filial love. Quite different things, surely. Uxoriousness, that's my favourite kind of love. Obsessive love of one's wife. <laughs> oh, there you have me. <laughs> We're back for part two. James, can you tell us about The English Patient, the film? <laughs> well, it's a similar sort of setup to the book that we've described. There's still four people in the villa, with Ray Fiennes as the not-so-English patient in spectacular Burns makeup, uh, Juliet Binoche as Nurse Hannah, Willem Dafoe as Caravaggio, and Nabim Andrews as uh, Kip. One difference is that Caravaggio is just someone who sort of knows Hannah from Canada or has heard of her from Canada, rather than someone she grew up with and was a close friend of her father's. His motive for for seeking out the villa is really to exact a kind of revenge upon the English Yeah, th so th uh, there's a much closer relationship, a much more direct relationship between um, Almasi uh, in his spying work and Caravaggio, who's sort of after revenge. Uh, you're right. Kip actually becomes a sort of distinctly minor character here. The biggest difference between the book and the film is that the film essentially turns the whole thing into the big love affair between Almasi and Catherine yeah. back in the desert. A grand passion set against great historical events. And uh, they experience that passion uh, by having sex in the bath and up against walls with a lot of the old putting of the thumbs in the mouth and all of that. <laughs> uh, her husband, uh, incidentally, 
It's played by a somewhat baby-faced Colin Firth. Yeah, I know. Yeah. There's a scene of him in a Santa costume at one point, which is just so pleasing. <laughs> and, it's uh, very Love Actually before Love Actually, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And if it had been more faithful to the book, as I said before, I think Juliette Binoche would have been up for Best Actress. Uh, Kristen Scott Thomas for Best Supporting Actress. But um, as I say, this this completely foregrounds Catherine and uh, Almasi's grand, grand passion. Um, came out to largely rave reviews. Anthony Lane in The New Yorker, for example, called it an intimate epic. Vast landscapes mingle with the minute details of desire and the combination is transfixing. As I say, sales of Herodotus went through the roof. But since then, there's been a bit of a, a backlash and the film became uh, slightly more fashionable to mock, I think. Uh, possibly led by an episode of Seinfeld in 1997 called The English Patient, where Elaine's hatred for the movie when everybody else loves it so much means she loses their friends, is dumped by a boyfriend and is sacked by the boss. And since then, it's often been... Um, reviled the film for being overblown and generally taking itself too seriously. Nope. Uh, which the writer of the episode of Seinfeld actually said he quite liked the movie. He just wanted to pick one that everybody felt that they had to admire. On the one hand, unbelievably well acclaimed. On the other hand, then became slightly fashionable to mark. Which side are you on, Jim? I love this film. I love this film so much, James. I'm obsessed with this film. I have to sound a bit less frantic saying this because otherwise everyone's not going to take me seriously. But yeah, I am hyper fixating on it. Like I've watched it like three times now and I'll watch it again. Um, wh- wh- why? <laughs> <laughs> Just like there's nothing wrong with it. I can give you a list. So first okay, off... I-, I can give you a list of what might be wrong with it just to, for devil's advocate purposes. Okay, well, don't. I'm, I'm going to give you my list first. <laughs> I, th- I think first off, it's just like so incredible to me that this, like the film maintains an anti-nationalist, anti-imperialist stance that I think is kind of more portrayed through Caravaggio as a character than through um, Kip and also perhaps more through the English patient story arc, which is a bit more fleshed out in the film than it is in the book, really. Uh, Much more fleshed out. It becomes the focus, doesn't it? Yeah. The the fact is, when you watch this film, it, it looks, by all accounts, like an English period drama. Like, it almost kind of looks like a Merchant Ivory film, really. Mm. Parts of it actually look like a Rubens or a Caravaggio. Like, the scene where Kip is, like, sitting alone in the outhouse and Hannah's trying to break down the door to find him. There's this scene that's kind of like the camera's clearly sort of on the floor, handheld, and the light is falling across him at an angle. And it's night, so it's dark. That just looks like a Caravaggio painting. That's incredible. But yeah, to have created an anti-nationalist film out of a period drama is just like wonderful to me. It's the two things I love most in the world put together very pleasingly with this sandwich in a sandwich that's like filled with these incredible actors, as you say. Oh, like Incredible actors. Well, Ray Fiennes, really? Yeah, I do. Not think way too clipped. I mean, uh, uh, people often compare it to uh, Lawrence of Arabia, obviously, because there's lots of great sweeping desert scenes. But it also reminds me a little bit of another David Lean film, which is Brief Encounter with very clipped English people. But uh, he's meant but, but to he, be I know, but he is he is he meant to be that clipped? Well, yes. Maybe let's listeners judge for themselves. Why were you holding his collar? What? What? That boy. That little boy. You were holding his collar. You were gripping his collar. What for? Is he next? You're going to drag him into your little room. Where is it? Is this it? Don't do this. I've watched you. I've watched you at garden parties, on verandas, at the races. 
How can you stand there? How can you ever smile as if your life had capsized? You know why? Dance with me. No. Dance with me. I want to touch you. I want the things which are mine, which belong to me. Do you think you're the only one who feels anything? Is that what you think? But it's essential that he's clipped because both the film and both in the film and in the book, um, he I think in the book there's this line that goes. I am a man who starves himself until he finds what he wants. I'm paraphrasing this slightly, but it's something to that effect. And I, I feel like the only point, to, you know, there's another uh, passage in which he says that um, when he reads novels, he identifies more with the jaded villains than when the, with the optimistic sort of heroes and heroines. He is supposed to be an extremely clipped man. This is part of the tragedy of his relationship with Catherine in the film and I suppose um, more something that makes him more of a useful cipher in the book. Um, but I like it's not something I noticed or that I picked up on. Okay, well, I, 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 two two thoughts about it. one. My, my most generous was that it, because he's not English, he was trying too hard to be English, Almasi, and therefore would have been over the top. But the other one is I, I did wonder if it was the kind of Brits designed to appeal to Americans as well. I don't know because to be honest with you, I I think there is a scene. I won't spoil the the film but there is a scene towards the end of the film where Catherine Clifton and Alain Jai are in a cave and he's going to leave her in the cave you know what I'm referring I, to I very much do but yeah and he makes this speech to her and that is a moment which could be so over the top which could be so overblown you already kind of know how it's going to end because the first shot of the film is him crashing a plane in the desert and falling out of it in flames so you can't you kind of know where this is going it's a scene in which you know ray fines as an actor could like he could really ham it out he's making a lot of very romantic declarations to catherine at this point it's kind of a point at which they're forced to admit to each other the extent to which they've loved each other but he's so quiet with it he almost whispers it and i think the magnitude of it is could only be conveyed with the kind of subtlety. I think on Darche in an interview with Charlie Rose and Anthony Minghella, who directed the film, talks about it as one of the most sort of generous pieces of acting that he's ever witnessed. I read a good article on the BBC website. I think part of the reaction against it, I think, is, is because it is in a way dated, but sort of unashamedly so in a way. But the, this article was suggesting it was the last hurrah almost of a genre that's more or less disappeared now, the great epic sweeping love story against a backdrop of big historical events in the tradition of Gone with the Wind or Dr. Zhivago, uh, which perhaps doesn't suit our more sceptical age. Uh, and the consensus among people who are sceptical about this is that Fargo should have won the best picture Oscar that year because that pointed the way to the future and this is this is belongs in a way to the past. But in a... Having played my devil's advocate for a bit, I really loved the great unashamed sweeping old-fashioned big old movie feel to it or i don't know i i have to say i don't see it as a great big sweeping movie i think it's sort of deceptive in that way because it's set in a desert and that's an incredibly like you know there are sandstorms and crashing planes to be sure but i actually think 
a lot of the what makes this movie so brilliant is 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 things that you would actually miss on the first well you would only subconsciously realize on the first watch but become clear to you when you watch it the second or third time around so earlier in part one I was talking about the kind of beauty and tragedy of Hannah feeding the English patient plums and him going back into his memory and the way that translates in the film is so minute it's actually sound it's that um you don't realize it like you register it but you don't realize it on first watch when she pushes the plum through his teeth and the camera lingers on this moment you start hearing a bell in the distance and you also start hearing uh plant life and animal life you hear birds tweeting and the reason this is so significant is that up until that point in the film the only sounds you've been hearing are machine made the sounds of a train on its tracks rumbling through the sounds of guns in the war the sounds of cars the sounds of bombs going off then all of a sudden with this gesture of hannah feeding alamsey the plum the soundscape of the film changes and you're drawn back into memory in this very kind of organic, subtle way. And it's just one of the instances in this film where I felt like I didn't love it because it was big and sweeping and I still maintain that it's not big and sweeping. I loved it because it it was almost Proustian where like, okay, say like a big scene where, um, Clifton and the English patient are trapped in the car in the sandstorm and the sandstorm is raging around them actually what's pivotal about that scene is the fact that she's lying on his arm and she kind of looks to it and he looks at it and there's this like protracted moment in which you realise as the viewer she's not going to push it away and there's this like silence apart from like the kind of wind outside again a very organic sort of natural sound and that's where these like really beautiful moments lie. This is sort of linked to that, but slightly tangential. It made me think that books can be a lot more sort of supple than than films. So how they get together in the book, um, the sort of their love affair can be done in little sort of patches and scenes here and there, can't it? Whereas in the film, certain amounts of business have got to be done. They've got to be trapped in the desert. They've got to lose that. This has got to happen. And it made me think, the films have to be a bit clunkier as books can. One thing that was quite interesting that I heard Michael uh, Michael and Darcy say was that um, he was told by uh, Mingella that you can only have one flash, only one character can have a flashback in a film, which is why they simplified it the way they did. So again, the, the suppleness of books that they can do as many as they want with all sorts of backstories flying to and fro. Having read the book quite carefully, obviously, as you do for these podcasts, then watching the film quite carefully as you do for the podcast. If anybody wants to know about how to adapt the screenplay, this would be a good exercise to do, I think. You can see the decisions, why all the decisions were made. Um, and in some of them, I think it, there's certain improvements over the, uh, over the book. I think getting rid of that sort of Hiroshima apocalyptic ending business is better. Oh, I think beefing up Hardy, actually, uh, who's Kip's, Kip's assistant. I think the spy plot is a lot clearer and better. Mm. I, don't uh, know. I mean, obviously, what you lose out on is is the unbelievable breadth and nuance and interest. How to streamline a book into a movie? I mean, we we sort of well, we didn't major on that last time with Schindler's List, but we could have done. But in this, it's 
I don't think I'd ever done, done that before. I'd read a book just before I'd watched a movie and just seen all the decisions that this screenwriter made and why they made them and how understandable they all were. I don't necessarily agree with all of them, but how thoughtfully and beautifully the streamlining was done on the whole in this. And as I say, complete with improvements to the book. I think Ondaatje, Ondaatje and Megillah agree with you with the with taking out Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end because I think it was something to do, I can't remember where I read this, but it was something to do with the fact that the film had focused so carefully on four other people that to suddenly introduce even abstractly the concept of loads of other characters or people yeah. or strangers would would blow apart the end of the film no pun intended by kind of losing the intimacy that you've gained of watching these four characters lives intersect and there's just that but also what what because kip is as we say massively downplayed he does get one great moment towards the end where he shows um a, a lovely scene where he, he shows hannah the uh, high up you know with the with the robe yeah. high up on the church the mosaics now in in the book it's a very famous scene in the book, he does that to a medieval historian who happens to be in town. Yeah. <laughs> and let's be honest, it's better. It's better it's in the better film. It's better than it's Hannah. Yeah. And it also gives Kip a big moment, which he, he, it's a shame he's downplayed in the film in a way. I feel like their relationship is kind of contained within that one scene because it's point at which he's yeah. showing Hannah and she's showing him how to find beauty in things again after a really terrible time. But I did, I, I missed, I actually, for this, this time around, I watched the, film first and then I read the book I I mourned and then I went back and watched the film again I mourned Kip's kind of absence yeah, from the film yeah. I think he's such a a genuinely beautiful character in the but I mean he still is in the film but I think the problem with having someone like Naveen Andrews play him in the film in a comparatively minor role is that this might just be me, but I did spend my first two viewings kind of just being like, he's so hot. God, he's really good looking, you know? Uh, if, if, if people don't know who he is, he was, he was in Lost. He was Saeed in Lost, and he yeah. was also he also made his first mark in Buddha, in, Buddha in Suburbia. Yeah, uh, more younger viewers might also remember him oh. as Jonas from Sense8 on Netflix. Um, <laughs> younger even than me, Joe. <laughs> Actually, that is a good point. I feel like this is something that always happens with them. Um, English period dramas, which is that the cast is always so much hotter than the people, the actual characters in the book it's adapted from. And pardon my French for the book of podcasts, but the thing about the English patient that's way more apparent than the than the book is that it's such a horny little film. <laughs> like it's so full of repressed desire and the sense that characters are you know, always on the brink of having sex with each other. I sometimes kind of wonder whether that comes more out of the fact that people like a young Ray Fiennes, a young Kristen Scott Thomas, a young Juliet Binoche are just so outrageously good looking that you want to see no, them they, have sex. I, I mean, that's, that's, part of, that's part of the proper old school movie, isn't it? <laughs> just having extremely good looking people on the screen, I, I, which I, I do think is, does, does help a movie, let's be honest. Uh, and it certainly helped this one. One thing it didn't win, which I was quite surprised having hymned it, have you ever heard of a, of a film called Sling Blade by Billy Bob Thornton? That's what won Best Adapted Screenplay that year oh. over Mingella. I think he, he might have been robbed. Can't say, having never seen Billy no, Bob no, Thornton's no, 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 no. joint. You know? <laughs> yes, yes, I suppose that. You know, what, a, what a fair-minded woman you are. I yes, I haven't actually seen it either. So maybe it's the greatest adapted screenplay ever. But this, this I think it does an astonishingly good job. And anything? Oh, do we, do we have to come to that question I rather dread? Yes. Okay, then, Joe, what do you prefer off of... Uh, the English Patient, the book, 
and the film. It's a really close call this time. Yeah, see, that's what I was like with Schindler's Yeah, list. but I'm, I'm I, not going to mince 200 words, no, but James. You're allowed, <laughs> you're allowed to say they're both great. I think you are. No, I, I'm actually, I am going to go for film. Are you? Yeah, it, wow. but it's it's sort of like, you know. It, it's a bit of a twist. I don't think the listeners would have seen that one coming. No, I love, I love, love, love this book. But I think there is something about, don't get me wrong, um, Ondaatje invests a lot of sort of exquisite craft and care. And I love Kip's character so much in this book in a way that doesn't come across in the film. But I think ultimately it's these small details in the film, the score by Gabriel Yared, the also, kind of also sound also design, the editing. Yeah, yeah the, the editing and the sound design. And um, I, I don't I don't rate the film higher for the fact that it's more of a love story between Clifton and Alamsley. I rate it higher because I think it would have been so easy to mess up an adaptation of this book. And yet it works. And I think it's a spectacular achievement. I was not going to go for book. I, I, did, I did. I did love the film. I rambled this time. I, 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 it's exactly. We we take our turns of rambling, but just to ramble very, very actually so shortly that it can't even be called rambling. I um just think there's more interesting stuff in it. I mean, the film's good, but the book's just got more in it, and uh, therefore it gets my vote. Um, so that's the book at the Oscars for this week. I think we're back next week with straight on with the remains of the day, the big one that got away as far as the Oscars are concerned, nominated for loads and loads. Lost them all to another book of books, so we're not too bitter about it. Schindler's List that we've already discussed. So that's it for this week. To find out more about The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje, head to thebookerprizes.com. And regular listeners can uh, join in with this bit now because you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at The Book of Prizes, as well as joining our book group on Facebook. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. The Book of Prize podcast is hosted by me, Joe Hamier and by James Wharton. It was produced and edited by Kevin Moyolo, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It is a Daddy's Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes. 